Hey, everybody. Welcome to the third episode of the podcast that we're still saying is unnamed, but we're still calling it Taps and Patience anyway. I'm here with my co-host, Harrison, from Precision Ingenuity. Good afternoon. So what have you been up to this week? Oh, man. We're we're getting busy. We're getting real Are busy. You? Oh, man. it's uh, Everything's hitting at once now, mm. and it's it's pretty wild. So... We got overflow work from a couple of machine shops. Mm-hmm. I got some design work from a guy down in Miami, Florida. Um, okay. We went to a gun show this weekend and got invited back to another gun show next weekend. Um, and Zometry reached out to us and wants to do a shop tour of our facility. Oh. And it's okay. some sort of a promo thing. I have no idea what it is, but something might come of it. So we'll see how that goes. We're already part of their premium network, so I don't know if this is like a shop tour to become because they have like two, they have three tiers. You have your entry level premium and like ultra premium. Interesting how how it all works, but anyways, they requested a shop tour, and um, so we'll see how that goes. And then there was some engineering, some local engineering work that I was going to do. I've been working on for like two or three months. And the company finally got back to us and set up a, a date next or this week, I guess now that they want us to come in. And so it's just everything is starting to all compress in a very short amount of time. And so we're going to be extremely busy. And then you have the holidays. So no one was working today. So I got to fit more work in four days. So I'm probably going to be very busy by the end of the week. Yep. <laughs> What is your major bottleneck? Like when you say that you're getting busy, what is getting busy? Is it machine time? Is it you time? Like what? Honestly, it's all of it right now. Um, so we got enough work to keep the biz- the machine busy, all, uh, the lathe busy all week. Um, we got some laser work that we can do. Um, we got engineering design work. Um, I have meetings and, and stuff, meetings and uh, plant visits scheduled for the week. And... I made a lot of connections at the gun show. And so those guys might be coming by to, um, I had, we, we designed an AR 15 stand that looks pretty cool. It's got the base of Arkansas on it. And so I got a guy that wants to buy a couple of those. Um, we got like 10 or 15 back from anodizing. And so he might buy like half of them. And then we have another product that we had anodized that should be coming in this next week. Um, and it's just, for me, it's my time. I can't do too many things at once. And so, and between me and my partner slash cousin, um, he's going to be busy trying to keep the machines running while I'm busy trying to keep the design stuff going. And then we have other stuff that neither one of us can really do that. We got to figure out which one of us is going to do it and which one of us is going to have time to do it. And so it's really exciting because we've been kind of slow here the last few weeks, but it's also a little bit stressful because it's all hitting at the same time. Yeah. Um, so I don't I don't know how we're going to balance it all out. But so your bottleneck is still human capital, not machine capital, really. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We okay. still we're going to have the the mill is going to be stationary most of the week. Although we do have some mill work lined up for it, we're waiting on tooling and material to come in. Um, okay. So I'm not sure when that's going to hit. So basically, um, I have gun work. I have lathe work, I have mill work, and I have engineering work. So that's like 
and laser work. So that's like all five categories of things we do. The only thing I could throw in there would be 3D printing. And I had a couple guys at the gun show that they had some different items that they wanted to design and have 3D printed for. I think one guy had some bow parts and one guy had some gun parts that they wanted to try to do something custom for. And if they stop by the shop this week, I'm just going to have to tell them that it's going to have to be a little yeah. bit before I get to it. So um, it's exciting. It's, um, and it's it's one of those things that if, if it could keep up this pace, I would feel comfortable, you know, expanding and maybe bringing on another person to kind of help out. But um, I'd have to, it'd have to continue at this pace for a little bit. Cause we've, we've kind of hit, we went for almost two months. Um, four months ago, we had about a two month straight where we were basically doing nothing. We were working on product stuff. We were working on, like we weren't doing nothing. We weren't twiddling our thumbs, but we didn't really have any major paid work coming into the doors. And now all of a sudden we have more work than we can handle in a short period of time. If that work had been distributed out, it'd be a lot better. Yeah. Um, Isn't that one of the lean wastes? I don't remember exactly what they, what they call it, but um, like uneven distribution of work or hurry up and wait. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, there is a lot of that around here and that is what I hated about my old job was that you would go through, these spells where it would be like you were so busy that you'd be putting in 80, 80 plus hours a week. And then you'd hit like a dry spell for a month or two where you're doing, you're sitting on your hands doing nothing. And, and I hate that kind of workflow. I want to be consistent um, as consistent as possible. Yep. And so, you know, before we were, we were scrambling around trying to do as much as we can to try to find work. And now that's paying off because we're getting a ton of work in a ton of different areas. Um, but I don't know if any one of those areas is going to be consistent. It's kind of like a big push of a lot of work, but I don't see any of this work that we're about to be doing to be something that like, once we get it done, it's going to become repeat work. Yep. And so that's, the, that's kind of the scary side of the work is that like, yeah, we're getting really busy. I don't want to turn anything away, but once I get it done, you know, I'm not going to do this, you know, the people that I'm doing gun stuff for, they're usually onesie twosie stuff from local guys. So they're not going to just have an army of guns that they're going to keep sending me to do work on. Um, you know, I'll build up a reputation and they'll tell their friends and maybe I'll get connections that way. Um, and then I got overflow from another shop and, you know, I've had overflow before and then we didn't have anything for like a month and then he's got more stuff. So it's a little more consistent. Um, I think as he's getting more comfortable with us, he's starting to send more stuff our way. So that one could grow. Uh, engineering stuff down in Miami. I mean, that's just a guy found us online and asked us to do something. So that's definitely probably not going to be something consistent. And then the local engineering stuff has the promise of being consistent, but the job that we've been working on has been going for four or five months and it, you know, it hasn't paid very much in that for Mm -hmm. the amount of time that it's been going. Um, But I'm, I'm happy to do it if we can keep getting more work with it. Um, I just want it to speed up a little bit to where it can be less hurry up and wait type yep. stuff. So how are you, you said that you're not getting paid very much for that engineering work. How are you billing them? Are you, do you have an hourly rate or are you just wanting to machine parts for them or? So the local stuff, it's back and forth about scheduling and trying to find contractors and making sure the scope of work is good. Like I don't 
pay, I don't bill people for all that time. That's just the formal stuff you have to do before you can submit them a proposal that they agree to that you can get paid for. And so that's the annoying thing about engineering that I haven't quite figured out is like, I don't want to say, oh, if you want me to quote this or spend all this time going through all this work, then that costs because your engineering rates are usually pretty good, pretty, pretty high. And so you're trying to get the work, but you don't really get paid for the time that you've invested to get the work, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's fair. That makes sense. And so this job in particular has been, you know, we, we, we had a pretty good um, phase one and it paid pretty well, but it's kind of drug on for a month or two trying to get to that phase two point. And I, I haven't had anything that I could bill for in that time. It's just been back and forth talking to people, which is my time that has pulled away from doing stuff that can be generating revenue. But, you know, hopefully it's something that pays off and we get paid for at the end of the day. But we'll see. It's kind of an experiment to see if it's something that I want to continue to do or if it's something that I'm going to be like, okay, you know, it's not worth it. It's, it's not the type of engineering work I want to pursue. I don't know. I'm still trying to figure that out. Depends at the end of this project if if I want to continue trying to get this kind of work. Yep. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about this a couple times. Like, it comes down to specialization. It Um, does. And is there the advantage of being the, like, the job shop that can do the design work and then make the parts for you? Like, that's Mm -hmm. a different kind of specialization versus, you know, are you just making parts for people? Yeah. And this engineering work that I'm doing, it's more big corporate engineering where it's like a, a, a big plant. Um, and we'll just use an example of like Walmart, which it's not, but it's a place like Walmart. So let's say Walmart had this job that I was going to do some design work for. You know, It's a much bigger scale than what my small scale operation can do, but I can do the engineering work and then I can hire in external contractors to go do the work um, so that I don't have to do it. And that's kind of what I'm looking at doing right now with this other company. Um, Okay. And it's kind of what your traditional contract engineers in this space probably do. Um, And me having a machine shop mixed in with that, it might not pencil out the same because it's, it's so heavily, heavily invested on my time that it makes it hard for me to get machine time in, in between all that. So, which if I got enough machine work that I could hire someone to take over the machine work, then I could find jobs to keep them busy and then keep myself busy with engineering work. And it could pencil out maybe that way, but yeah, that's all. It's, it's, it's hard trying to figure out which path to go and which you don't know which path is going to go. So you just start um, doing as much as you can. And then some stuff you get some stuff you don't. So, yep. What about you? What's been going on with you? Um, let's see. Over the last week or so, I've done a couple things. Um, I made more meeples. I think last we talked, awesome. I was making them out of, of round stock. I, I made mm-hmm. some out of bar stock, like a rectangular. Mm-hmm. And it just, like my productivity on those skyrocketed. Oh, really? Um, yeah. Why is that? In, so with the round stock, the, the first setup I had, you know, I, I had a piece of round stock sticking up and I would make mm-hmm. one meeple, slice it off, make one meeple, slice it off. Mm-hmm. And I was getting about 10 meeples in an hour, which mm-hmm. isn't really enough to justify making them because um, I, can, mm-hmm. I can't sell them enough to you know justify my time and the machine's time. 
Mm-hmm. And but then when I moved to bar stock, I had just a piece of scrap I had laying around. It was just under six inches long, uh, three quarters uh, thick and three inches wide. And I stuck mm-hmm. that up on end and mm-hmm. I was able to get like six or seven meeples all in a row and then slice them off and then six or seven more meeples and slice them off. And in about the same amount of time, in about 50 minutes, an hour, I got like 45 meeples. Oh, wow. That is a massive improvement. Yeah. And I could optimize that even more. So like that was three inch wide stock. If I moved to four inch stock and then had longer, um, I could probably get down to under 45 seconds per meeple. Wow. That's impressive. So, yeah. So um, then, then they start to make sense as a product. For sure. Now, when you're doing that kind of work, are your pieces, your meeples, are they just flying all over the machine? So I ran into a very cool side effect of my process. Okay. So with the slitting saw, I I slit, you know, halfway through on one side. Then I come on the other side and I slit halfway through. Mm-hmm. The But when you're doing the second side, the very last pass, there's unsupported material behind it, right? Mm-hmm. And so when you... Basically, that that unsupported material becomes one giant burr, and it connects all of the meeples into a ribbon, and they okay. just nicely fall onto the table. And then the, you can you can pick them up as one one nice little ribbon and just pull off the ribbon, and they become, you know, that's that's really cool. Yeah. What's your what's your working material for that? Right now, they are just sixty sixty one aluminum. I've also done it in brass, mystery brass, and it works mm-hmm. just as well. That's awesome. That's that's a really cool process. I really like that because you can just set it up and let it run and you don't have to develop any sort of special fixturing. Um, it's, yep. it's all in just how you hold it in the vise and um, can spit out the pieces. Now, what about the waste? Do you have any waste material at the bottom? Because you got to hold it with a vise. So you're going to have some amount of waste. Yes. Um, I'm left with about a, an inch of um, the bar stock there at the bottom that I can't get to partially because I'm terrified of crashing the, the nut on the bottom of the slitting saw into the mod vice. Mm-hmm. And then there's, you know, some that's being held in the vice, mm-hmm. but I can always use that for something else later. Yeah. You have to come um, up with a new product that you can use with that. Yeah. That fits that <laughs> or prototyping or whatever. Oh, there you um, go. But yeah, I figured out that I can get like 250 meeples on my table with my two mod vices. If I just oh, get wow. two long pieces of stock that's four inches tall, uh, you know what you should run... look at. What's that? Go ahead, go, go ahead and finish your thought, and then I, I got a, a thought. I was as just well. going to say that it would be able to run most of the night. Yeah. So you know flux work holding. Yeah. So I would get like two or three of those, and then you have front and back stations on those, and then mm-hmm. you can hold a bar that's the full width of your table. And yeah. And then you could hold two or three bars that are full width of your table and you could get a ton and let it run for a long time. My math of like 200, 250 meeples was based on two bars running almost the full length of the table. I haven't gone too far into detail to figure out like how many I can fit, especially with the slitting saw clearances because that's a two inch tool. So like it has to go mm-hmm. past the end and stuff. Um, But yeah, I need... To- I, I'm having some finishing problems on that, which we'll get to in a second. But I have someone who's interested in white labeling those oh, okay. um, to do their own Kickstarter for them. 
So I'll, I'll just make them and he can sell them. And like, honestly, I don't care about putting them in my own Etsy store at all. Yeah. Um, no, that's, that's that. awesome. That's, that's a very interesting, you know, uh, have you heard of um, Angry Bird Builds? No. He's a he's a guy on YouTube. He does woodworking CNC, and he started out with a Shiboko. And mm-hmm. his whole side of things is he does the mass production for vendors, and so he does he doesn't sell direct consumer. Um, and he just finds people that have wood products that they want to have in their store, and he mass produces them. Yeah. Um, and so it, that what you're talking about there kind of reminds me of what he's doing, except for the uh, metal machining side. And so yeah. it's an interesting process that like, if you can guarantee you're going to get high volume parts, it's an interesting way of going about and doing it. Yeah. And I would happily white label things for, uh, for people like, cause it does, it, it takes, it, it's filling up my spindle time, which right now I have is plentiful and um, not taking my sales time, which right now mm-hmm. is where I'm the most limited. Yeah. Yeah, and so um, that's that's what that's what I'd love to find a product for for my for my mill is something that I can just run continuously and just sell. And yeah, be mostly passive. So that's the dream. I think that's everyone's dream. Yeah. But. <laughs> yeah. Hit button. Get profit. <laughs> yeah. Print, print money. <laughs> yeah. Um. Okay. But in terms of finishing, so I, I've. My traditional finishing method, and I use this on on almost all my products just because it's it's simple and reliable, is I I sandblast the thing and then I tumble mm-hmm. it. And I tumble it um, just enough to make it like smooth and around the edges, but not to get all of the sandblasting out. And it's just mm-hmm. a little bit different texture than normal. Mm-hmm. The problem I'm running into is, you know, so the meeples are, are kind of people that are, are splayed out. They're stylized mm-hmm. people. And mm-hmm. they have armpits and like the like a neck a neck pit the 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 shoulder region between their neck and their um mm-hmm. their shoulders, and they have a crotch, and all of these are just slightly bigger than eighth inch diameter fillets, mm-hmm. and my media, which is the smallest media on McMaster, doesn't get in there. Interesting. And so all of my meeples that I've tumbled have have armpit stains where it's mm-hmm. just the sandblasted texture in the armpits and then you know the rest of it is all uh smooth and you know the stone washed finish um the person that you're going to white label them to are they going to paint them or anything um no i mean i can coat them or whatever if he wants but i have a feeling it's all going to be just raw metal finishes Raw metal finishes. Okay. And you want the white wash, wash look instead of the sandblast look? Um, I am going to try some other sandblast medias. What I have traditionally done is a super aggressive, super sharp grit that mm-hmm. um, leaves a very rough finish. The problem with it, especially on aluminum, it's actually not a big deal on brass, but on aluminum, if you rub it against something, it'll burnish down some of the sharp peaks and leave mm-hmm. a ugly mark. Um, so it's very it's very easy to to screw up that finish. But I am going to try getting some um, steel shot and do like a, a peened steel surface. Yeah, because so then I, I couple- wouldn't need to tumble at all. 
So I have a couple thoughts on that. Um, one, vapor honing. Okay. Yeah, that's an option. Uh, and, and that's something I've always wanted to mess around with. Um, but I haven't had a good chance to actually get one and use one um, yet. And then the other thing is I've been sending off some parts to get anodized. And a lot of these mm-hmm. anodizers do like an acid bath for aluminum. And it gives mm. it a uniform look before anodizing. Yeah. And I wonder if you could do that acid wash. In, you could sandblast and then acid, wa- acid wash and then not tumble. Then um, I can try to dig up some photos of some of these guys that they've sent of my parts after being acid washed versus before. So you can kind of see the texture they look like. Um, but it's a very uniform matte texture. And that might work in place of tumbling after sandblasting. That is, it's definitely worth a try. Um, and one of the other things I need to do, so meeples are normally like, bright primary colors and there's you know probably mm-hmm. a dozen different colors that are common you know red blue green whatever mm-hmm. with with metal i have to get that color in other ways and i don't just want to paint them or powder coat them if i can avoid it because mm-hmm. as soon as you powder coat an aluminum part it, it looks like a wood part mm-hmm. and so i was gonna do like you can do okay you can start by doing different materials you can do aluminum you can do brass you can do copper Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you could always do stainless and titanium, but those look enough like aluminum. It doesn't matter. Well, the beautiful thing about doing something like titanium is that you can set up an anodizing setup pretty quickly in your shop. Um, and that's something like I had some friends that were big into knives and they had some titanium stuff and we just anodized in a garage with just like a, I think it's just a variac. Mm-hmm. Where you can adjust the voltage and you put it in, in an acid bath, and you can get all sorts of colors out of it. It'll look unique. It won't look painted. Um, you kind of know what the uh, the anodized titaniums look like. Um, so that's true. Um, I though that I guess that would make them a lot more expensive, which I guess isn't the end of the world. No. I have kind of a bias against anodized, uh, especially anodized titanium. It is oh. actually in like I have a, a a written out style guide for better keychains, mm-hmm. and it is in the written out style guide that I do, don't do anodization, but that's okay. for better keychains, and this wouldn't be a better keychains product, so it doesn't matter. But I don't know. I just don't like the the colors you get. Yeah, but you're um, right. That you... would work. Hmm. Um. What else could you do? Um. Well, I. So I have a couple ways of getting different finishes. Like um, Mm -hmm. I did a product called the Arch Top a couple years ago, which was a spinning top. They were all brass. And I think Mm -hmm. I had five different finishes that I could get on them. They were all pretty wildly different. And so like I could do those same, you know, five finishes again, or at least four of them. um, And get some pretty different ones there. And then you can change the color of the... Uh, of a piece of stone washed aluminum by how much water you put in the tumbler. And yeah. um, basically like I do either one-to-one water to media and that gets a very bright finish. 
and then I can do one that's like one third water to two thirds stone or uh, ceramic media, and that gets a pretty dark finish. So like I, I have different finishes I can do; they're just not colorful. Well, here's here's a an interesting thought. Um, when you sell them in a pack, are they all going to be matched, or are they all going to be different colors? Like, what's what's your use case scenario? Like, are people are going to buy them in a, in a and because you're going through someone else, they might have a different use case in mind. Um, but my thought process is if they just say you want to have four meeples and you want them all to be different. Um, one thing that you could do that could be unique is four different material types. So you could mm-hmm. do an aluminum, a titanium, a brass, and maybe a stainless steel. Um, and then instead of having different colors, you have different materials. Yeah. And so, um, the only thing I don't, I don't know is how that would affect your price and you'd have to get specialized tooling for each type of the material, but it's an interesting thought instead of having to finish them and color them. And I think it'd be a unique selling point um, because people would be, you know, Oh, this one's super light versus this one, which is super heavy. And you can kind of That's true. Tell, tell them apart by their properties rather than by any sort of uh, bright, shiny colors. Though for for gameplay, like these are getting put on a, a game board mm-hmm. where like at a glance, you need to be able to separate your pieces from your opponent's pieces. But I think I think you can kind of tell most materials, although um, your brass is going to be easy to differentiate your um, your steel and your titanium will be pretty close. Yes. Um, and your aluminum, I think, is unique enough that you can usually tell that one pretty, pretty quickly. Um, but yeah, your steel and your titanium, unless you throw in plastics in there, which I'm sure you don't want to do. Um, but I could be wrong. You could do um, like different, different types of um, like UHMW colors or Delrin colors where the plastic is already colored. So that's another thought. I think instead of doing like UHMW or Delrin, because um, even though those are quote unquote nicer plastics. They look and feel like cheap, crappy plastics. Mm-hmm. Um, but you could do like a micarta. Okay. Meeple. And I don't know what the price would be like on, I don't know how much that material costs. I'm not familiar with micarta. What is that? You're, okay. Micarta is a um, laminated series of either paper or fabric. Oh, and okay. It's uh, it gets used a lot in knife scales. Occasionally, gets used gotcha. on um, I don't know. They call them a scale on a gun. The grip on a gun. That's not like um, G10, is it? Yeah, it's a um, G10 would be a specific version of a micarta. Gotcha. Okay, um, that makes sense. The now. difference being G10 is, I believe, fiberglass based, whereas mm-hmm. micarta would be fabric based or paper based. Okay. okay, I'm following. Um. And one of the nice things about the about micarta is so it's you know it's fabricy, it's fibrous. Um, mm-hmm. It's almost like wood. Then when you cut it, like some of those fibers get released and or exposed to the air. It's it's mm-hmm. in like a epoxy matrix, and it, it actually is very nice to the touch. Like it's not it's not soft. It doesn't feel fabricy, um, but it, it it's kind of warm it's hard to explain it's it's i don't know it's pleasant to the touch and it's very grippy which is why it gets used on on knife blades that makes it, sense. it adds especially like when it's wet it adds a good amount of grip 
in case cool. you're you know playing board games underwater <laughs> hey, but you it never also know. comes in a lot of colors and patterns and stuff <laughs> I could, that could be a unique twist yeah <laughs> the, under, the underwater I, board game <laughs> i'm sure there's like an underwater version of Catan or something like that yeah have you okay i, I want to have you ever played board games that are let's say more complicated than monopoly like have you ever played settlers of Catan or ticket to ride yeah so um I have a group of friends that are local and we try to meet up about once a month and we are board game nuts. Um, okay. So um, we play, I mean, I say board game nuts. I always love playing games. I I will play tic-tac-toe with a little kid all the way up to um, like um, terraforming Mars with a a group of friends and trying to strategize everything. Um, I just, I love playing games with people, period. Uh, I just like having that kind of fun. Um, and I can be quite competitive, but we, we play games, um, terraforming Mars, Raiders of the North Sea, Scythe, um, mm-hmm. uh, what was that other one? Uh, Risk Legacy, which have you heard of that one? Okay. Um, no, but I know what Risk is and I know what a legacy game is. So Risk Legacy, okay, you got me sidetracked on board games now, so I'm going to have to yeah, say okay, about this We'll one. give board game talk five more minutes, then we'll get back to machining. Okay, okay, okay. This one's really <laughs> cool. So Risk Legacy plays like normal Risk, mm-hmm. and it evolves over time. You can yeah. only play 15 games, and you usually want to start with the same people. Unlike normal Risk, you start out with a faction that has one ability. Over time, you open decks and add stickers and your factions gain more abilities over time. And you'll put stickers on the board and you can scar the map and change the terrain. You'll draw lines and connect points that are not normally connected by water. And you can uh, destroy cards, add missions, um, and you win by either killing everyone or collecting red tokens. And unlike normal risk where you start out and you place all your pieces, you start out with a home base and eight guys and you Mm -hmm. spread out from there. So it's very placed very, very much like traditional risk at the very beginning. And at the very end, it changes completely. I've had games that have lasted four hours and I've had games that have lasted four minutes. Um, And it's just crazy how stuff changes over time. And you'll be in the middle of a game open a pack of cards and all the rules that you were just following go out the window because there's new rules that have just entered in the middle of the game. And so what strategy you were using just a minute ago might not be valid anymore. So it's just a fun one. And at the end of the game, each board has a serial number. Everyone signs whoever won the game on the board. They got a little area for that. And at the end of your 15 games, they said the, the winner of the, the whole thing, gets to sign his name and says, you know, he dominated the world. basically. <laughs> uh-huh. And right now we've played all 15 games. There's three of us and we have a three-way tie for first place. Wow. So we have one more game left and whoever wins that game wins the whole thing because we're all tied okay. up. So we're pretty evenly matched in that way. So it's pretty nice. Yeah. I, so we like the same kind of games, I think was the end of the story here. Yeah, um, sorry. I had, I had to go on a little rant about uh, Risk Legacy yeah. because it was, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, that's a whole class of games called Legacy Games uh, where there's, you know, a series of, of um, 
rounds, I guess you could call them that, you know, change the rules a little bit. And like, you kind of have some guidance to like, you get to, you get to influence how things unroll and stuff. Okay. Um, yeah. My group of friends <laughs> played one called charter stone. And that was my first introduction to meeples. <laughs> oh, gotcha. It was largely a worker placement game. Um, yeah. And the meeples were the workers. I'll have to, I'll have to look up that game a, a little bit later. Charterstone's good. Okay. Have you ever played Raiders of the North Sea? That was the one that I have not played out of the ones you've listed. I, I've okay. played the other ones. I think I've it's, played Skype, but... It's kind of worker placement, but um, it's also got uh, cities that you have to conquer. Uh, okay. And so you're, you're Vikings, basically, and you're, you're, moving, you're either moving workers or to generate resources or you're attacking something. So yeah. it's, it's pretty fun. So anyways, probably, probably need to get back yep. on. The back, back, to business, <laughs> back to business. Um, so advertising, that has been something that has been dominating my week lately. Mm-hmm. Um, I have been getting ready for the Kickstarter, obviously. And yep. I have been like pre-scheduling as many posts as I can for Instagram and Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, Facebook has a tool um, called well, <laughs> so funny story. They have a they had a tool called the um, Facebook Creator Studio, mm-hmm. and you could pre schedule your posts there. And I, I just recorded a YouTube video where I mentioned this, you know, Creator Studio, and mm-hmm. you know, you can pay other companies to like you know use their app to do the same thing, but like mm-hmm. Facebook has it for free. And I, I'm pretty sure I said the words. Um, and because it's, you know, from Facebook, you know, that it's stable and is going to work. Mm-hmm. And then I immediately had to eat those words as the next day, it wouldn't let me view any of my posts that I had already pre-scheduled oh, no. and they were still posting, like it, it automatically posted them, but like, I couldn't see, like, I couldn't tell which pictures I had already used and like oh. what I had done already. And, and then the next day after that, it started working again. But there was a big pop-up that came up that was like, we are deprecating the use of this tool. And they now have like the face or the the, the meta business studio or something like that. And it's like, oh, well, now I guess I have to go to it there now. Oh, but I just my. talked about how that was going to be more stable and then was promptly proven wrong. <laughs> um, anyway, so I've been scheduling posts. Um, I had... Well, when I did it, I had about 15 scheduled. Now mm-hmm. it's been a couple of days. I think I have like 12 left that are up there, but I, and I need to schedule a whole bunch more. Yeah. Um, and I've been trying to make some like short little videos that I can use in advertisements, um, like, you know, paid advertising on Facebook and mm-hmm. Instagram. And I've kind of been struggling. Like, I'm just not a very good ad maker. Um, probably should hire a professional at this point, have like the, uh, product photographer I'm using making them or something. I don't know, but I'm learning a lot and yeah, well, I don't know. At some point making money is important. doesn't matter how much you know, if you go broke, (laughs) hopefully what you're learning will contribute to future revenue streams. Hopefully that's, 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 that's how I always justify it. (laughs) I'm learning something so I can make money down the line. (laughs) If nothing else, the practice that I got like over the last couple of days and today will allow me to communicate more effectively with the people that I am paying to do the work for me. So Exactly. 
Um, but on, okay. So that that's that. And obviously this is still like just in the creative phase. I haven't been able to test any of this stuff yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but on Etsy, I played around with Etsy ads a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And specifically I have like one Etsy listing that looks fairly professional and all of my mm-hmm. other ones are kind of more thrown together. And I I've played with ads some and like, I don't know I've always broken even or like, you know, mm-hmm. maybe just lost a little bit of money. Um, but I tried turning on Etsy ads for just this one listing that looks pretty professional. Turns mm-hmm. out having a professional looking listing makes a pretty big difference. Um, oh, up until I turned this on, like I could tell that most of my sales were driven from my Instagram account. Mm-hmm. Um, but on, I'm getting like a four to one return on paid ads for this, uh, Etsy listing. That's awesome. Um, so I'm going to have my photographer, graphic design buddy, Adam do redo all of my, my listings for me, new product photography, new descriptions, new titles. Uh, and hopefully that helps my sales, especially yeah. in things like the trays where I used to do like a thousand dollars worth of trays a month. And mm-hmm. now like now I haven't even sold one for probably a month. Oh yeah. So, yeah. Well, the holiday season's coming up, so I know that's that true. that people are going to start buying stuff a lot more. There's there's um some business YouTube channels that I watch and a lot of them have said that their holiday sales are are already starting to pick up. So, yeah. Those early and it buyers. Could be- it could be that the the sales on this are picking up because we are getting closer to the holidays. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, but your ads are obviously helping if you turned it on and saw immediate change. Yes. So making a so difference. Those have been running for, I don't know, like a week or two or so. And I just um, pumped up the numbers. I was only running $2 of ads a day and making, you know, 20 or 40 bucks a day on them. So... Now I, yeah, I moved it up to $5 a day. Big spender. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, but I don't know if it's going to be proportional or not. Like sometime yeah, with this yeah. type of advertising, like there's only so many people who are typing in the right keywords. It doesn't yeah. really matter if you spend $2 or if you spend $5. Yeah. So yeah, we'll, we'll see if well, that works out. Yeah. It's, it's weird. And as your sales numbers go up, people start to trust you more and are willing to buy from you more. So it's kind of a, a, a feedback loop. As you get more sales, you get a higher rating and more people are willing to buy from you. So it's just yeah. a build up over time. And Etsy yeah. will prioritize uh, listings that are selling. Mm-hmm. So yeah. the more you sell, the higher ranking you get, the more you sell. Yep. And then maybe the more effective your ads become too. Probably. So... Yeah, it's it's all a feedback, and, yep. and and the inverse is also true. If with if it starts failing and it starts failing continuously on all fronts, and then you have no sales. Yep, which I kind of think is what happened on my trays. Is I went out of stock, like I couldn't keep them in stock, and so I just you know you can't sell them when they're not in stock, mm-hmm. and like I just never recovered from that. Oh really? Yeah. Interesting. Um, oh, and the move. I guess I actually that was the big thing is I did the shop move. And so I didn't really make anything for two months or so. Um, mm. And my Etsy sales just plummeted. Interesting. 
I wonder if it's kind of like a like a YouTube algorithm where once you've upset it, you got to build it back up. I I think that's where I'm at. Hopefully this um it, it's the orange slice I have the keyring organizer that's selling pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um, which fortunately those are pretty low effort, and I have a lot of them in stock. That's awesome. Yeah, that's something. If if we start selling stuff a lot, I got to figure out how to get my inventory up so that we don't run out. And that's kind of hard with some of our items that take a month or more to get anodized. Yep. So kind of have a lot that's of stock I, of those. That's why I do everything in house now. Yeah. Um, as much as I can. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just, I don't know the, the over, like the, not the overhead, but the, I get the logistics on that just get so much more complicated. And then you're like, yeah. you're, spending money before you're making it so that hurts your cash flow and you're yeah. speculating on what will sell and how many will sell and what colors yeah. will sell and yeah we've we've easily got over ten thousand dollars worth of products just Oof. sitting around that we're trying to sell yeah um and the hard part about it is most of that product isn't even at our shop yet because it's at a bunch of other places getting anodized yeah. so it's just it's just painful because it's just cash that it's not making you money. It's just costing you at that yep. point. And so. someday that'll, you know, someday that'll turn into money, but right yeah. now you can't pay a machine payment with it. Like exactly, exactly. And see, and so that's the hard part is, is like, we've got as much out as we can handle right now out there being uh, anodized. And then when we get it back, we got to figure out if we can get it to sell. And if we can get it to sell, we're probably going to sell fast and run out and then that'll kill our momentum yep. because we don't have a lot. Like we have like seven or eight colors and we'll have probably 10 to 20 boxes in each color um, at most. And that can sell out fast. So um, if it's something that we, you know, like I want to go to that, um, convention you have yep. gen con uh, yeah gen con and um when i was at the gun show I, I talked to another vendor and um he was looking at our little cards he's telling me that a, a place in little rock that he goes to that's a gun show he says a lot of those guys are, are big big uh gamers as well like board mm-hmm. games card games and he said you'd probably sell out of those real fast down there um so if i could find the right crowd and then i had another guy who had family that worked at some of the casinos in oklahoma and he said that we need to take them over there and put the casinos logos on them. And they, they probably sell like hotcakes over there too. So yep. um, it's one of those things that if I, if I can find the right market, um, I think they do really well and they're a perfect fit for the Tormach. Um, there's a product that I could set up and just let run. Uh, and I'd really love to do that if I can find the right people that will, you know, go for it. Yep. Yeah. And like we know that these people exist. You just need to figure out mm-hmm. how to reach them. Yeah, because like you were, sh- you sent me some photos of some wooden boxes that were like way more expensive than what I'm charging <laughs> for these aluminum ones, and there's a lot less work in them. So um, I know there's there's people out there that'll pay those prices. And then th- the crazy thing is, I didn't tell you about this, but I had a friend and uh, he he moved away from here a few years ago, but I think he's in North Carolina now. He sent me a video of this guy out in Las Vegas who's basically making 
a very similar style product, except instead of doing it for cards, he's doing it for cash. He's got this aluminum brick. It's got four Allen keys in the and the or four Allen screws in the corners, and it's just a pocket, and it holds a brick of cash. And that's okay. all it is. And so he's got five thousand bricks, ten thousand bricks, fifteen thousand, all the way up to I think around a hundred thousand dollar bricks that you put yep. hundred dollar bills in, and it compresses them together. And he's selling these things for two hundred to eight hundred dollars. Wow. For these aluminum anodized clamshell bricks. And it's just nuts. And it's like, so like people are willing to spend that kind of money on that kind of product. Like I know there's, there's a group of people that this aluminum playing card case would just, they would just eat it up and um, I just need to find it. Yep. And I'm getting close. I think I'm getting close. I've talked to more, more and more people and I think I'm getting close to finding that, that group. So the more the more I do this product sales thing and the more I learn about it, the more I realize that like it, it's it's all about I'm going to call it advertising, but I really I guess I mean marketing like it's all about marketing. It's about finding these people, communicating with them, mm-hmm. um, you know, figuring out how to reach them, figuring out how to make something that they want to buy, figuring out how to present your thing in a way that makes them want to buy it like. Yeah, that's the that's all the work. <laughs> yeah, machining things is easy. <laughs> yeah, and and for for me, like I have a hard time coming up with products, but if I know there's a need, it's really easy for me to come up with something. Mm-hmm. The problem is, is I'm just naturally a content person, and so I just think no one would want anything that I can come up with because I think it's all just silly ideas. And then I look at things, um, like oh, I don't, I don't think I have it close to me, but it, my wife got this toilet scrubber the other day off of Amazon. And I was like, that is the most gimmicky thing I've ever seen. <laughs> but she, she absolutely loves it for cleaning the, the toilet and the shower. And, and it's like, okay. And I looked on Amazon it's got great reviews. They've sold, you know, thousands of these things. And it's, it's like, man, you, there's so many niches out there. If you can just find yeah. your niche and, and it's, it's, it's connecting the, the niche product to the niche customer. It's that connection that is the hardest thing for me to figure out because I can make the niche product. I can produce it. Hard time finding the customer. Yeah. I, I mean, I spend, I spend so much of my time doing marketing stuff. I mean, we are, we are doing that right now on this podcast. Like, yeah. Then, you know, I do all my YouTube videos. I do all my social media. Um, it's it, Yeah. I I really want to get good at advertising, like paid, um, you know, social media or otherwise, you know, more traditional advertising. Um, mm-hmm. which unfortunately, I think the only way to get good at it is to spend a lot of money. <laughs> but yeah. I, if you can get to a point where you are putting a dollar on an ad and then you are making two dollars, yeah, that becomes suddenly it's easy to scale your marketing. Where yeah. Just doing YouTube stuff, I guess, supposedly doesn't cost any money, um, just a whole lot of time, but it it doesn't scale as as neatly. Well, it it can. It just takes time to build up to that point. It's kind of like a it's like an exponential. You know, it's it's slow, 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 and then as soon as it picks up, it picks up like crazy. Um, I. 
scale. You're right. It does scale. It scales better than paid advertising. Um, if you're consistent, but, I don't know. You can't just pay money to scale it. <laughs> like, no, no, you can't. Yeah. No, no. But you know, it, not only do I want to to find the niche customer, and I'm sure you're in the same boat I am, but I want them to be amazed with my work. Like I, I mm-hmm. do want to. Like I, it's not so much trying to go for a gimmick as I do want to genuinely produce a high quality product that people love. Yes. You know, more than just being just like a gimmicky thing. Um, the thing is, is that you, you, you look around and there's so many gimmicky things that are succeeding you, and you put so much time and energy into your own thing. It's like, man, like I feel like I've, I've put the time in where's, where's my people. <laughs> well, you know, the difference between like that gimmicky product and what you're doing, right? What? The difference is $500,000 of advertising budget. <laughs> That's true. That's true. I mean, yeah, I advertising is can is massive. I mean, that's the whole reason these Hollywood blockbuster movies do as well as they do um cuz it's it's all in the advertising. I mean, half their budget is usually advertising or or yeah. it's a good percentage of it. Maybe not half, but like at least 20 to 30%. Uh, and as a, a small business where like, you know, I have X amount of money set aside. Um, actually, I'll share like right now to fund my next year of me and design the everything. I have $50,000 set aside from when we sold the old house. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, well, that's about 50 weeks of expenses for me and my family. Um, mm-hmm. Do I put that on advertising? Do I put $1,000 that's a week of, you know, of family expenses like do i spend that advertising like it might be the 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 smart choice but it's not an easy choice like it's not the choice you want to make well have you ever done much with the stock market a little bit so i mostly have my money in an index fund but like i i played with some faster paced like individual stock picking the other like last year or so my point with this is when I first started messing around with the stock market, some I put in like a hundred bucks and I'd buy a mm-hmm. stock for a couple bucks and I'd watch and it drop by three cents and I'd freak out and sell it. Like, <laughs> Oh man, I'm an idiot. And then like, I'd go buy it back and then it'd go up by a cent or two and I'd sell it and I go, okay, I got my money back. And it's like, you know, and then like, I was so hyper-focused on every dollar um, that I had because it was like, oh man, I don't know what it's going to do. What you know, this, that, the other, and I, I was so cautious with every dollar that I invested. And then as my comfort level level grew, and I kind of knew what was going on, I was willing to put more and more money in. And then I could have you know a, a couple dollar swing, ten dollar swing, even a hundred dollar swing, plus or minus, and it wouldn't affect me as much because yeah. as I became acclimated and kind of got comfortable with knowing where my money was going and what the market was doing it was a lot easier to let that money go. And I feel like with advertising, it's going to be kind of in that same boat where right now you're starting it with like $2 a day and then you go, Oh, $5 a day, a big spender, you know, (laughs) as your comfort level grows. And as you get to the point where um, you can see that return and you can, you can confidently go, okay, I know if I'm going to put X amount in, I'm going to get X amount out Um, or, you know, I'm going to get a minimum of X amount out. And if I play my cards right, I can, you know, get a maximum of X amount out. And you kind of have your range and then you can kind of go, 
oh, I put that in and I didn't even get my minimum. Well, then there's something wrong with my product. It's not maybe the advertising. Maybe my product isn't registering with people. Maybe it's a seasonal thing. Maybe it's like um, my carabiners are going to sell really well in the spring because that's when people are thinking about going outdoors. And so carabiners outdoors, they kind of go hand in hand. Um, and so it's kind of a spring type product versus uh, a fall type product or a winter or summer type product. And so, and that's, that's the interesting side of things that I'd like to, to get more into. Like, it's kind of like the next stage after you kind of get your product selling on a regular basis is kind of analyzing that data and going, okay, these are the time frames when my product sells the best. So this is the time frames when I can put the most money in advertising because I know if I hit this month, advertise hard in this month, I'm going to sell a ton versus other times of the year where I, I, I've sold this product long enough and I know it well enough that I know that if I try to push it here, I'm just, I'm wasting money because my ads aren't going to be as effective. Yep. So. Yeah. Um, I should, I, tomorrow I should dig into some of the paid advertising stuff because it's been a while since I've looked at it and I need to start building like, um, uh, I don't remember the, what the exact term is, but I'll call it a lookalike list. Mm-hmm. And I've never actually pr- provided one to Facebook before, but the way a lot of this advertising works is you, you give Facebook a list of people that are like, you know, someone who has bought your products before mm-hmm. and Facebook will go, okay, well I'll find people that look like this person for you and then show them ads. And then as those people buy or they don't, where they click on your ad or they don't Facebook will mm-hmm. add more people to that list. And you, you kind of grow this like lookalike, you know, data set. Yeah. Um, and the problem is though, like it's very easy to target the wrong people. Yeah. And if you don't have that data set at least, and even with that data set, like if I were to use the, um, the sticker of the month club data set that I have, um, like are those people, the right people to target anyway, are the people like even the people on my Instagram, I can target a look like audience to my Instagram, but is my mm-hmm. Instagram the right audience? Probably yeah. not. Cause most of my Instagram is there for machining. Yeah. That's true. Um, so I don't know where I was going with that, but Probably I need to learn just, more about advertising. <laughs> yeah. How do you, how do you focus your advertising in the right direction? Yeah. Yeah. That's a hard one. And it's one of those things where there is a lot of variables. Like you get to do some scientific testing. Like the mm-hmm. the Facebook ad manager is very much set up for experiments. Mm-hmm. But the problem is like there's so many variables that, yes, even though you can test two or three independent variables at a time, um, there's a million variables. Like you mentioned with yeah. time of year and like quality of the product. But then there's also like quality of the ad and like mm-hmm. quality of your website that the ad leads to and yeah. Yada, yada, yada. Well, I mean, I, I guess in, in the simplest term, uh, to break it down for most people, it's like on YouTube, I know they have a deal where you can do A-B testing with your um, with your thumbnail. Mm-hmm. And like it'll show dip the one thumbnail to a, a set of people and another thumbnail to a set of people. And depending on which one gets more clicks or has a cl- higher click-through rate, then it'll be like, oh, we should go with this one. And so you can make multiple ones. And I'm sure you could probably do something similar with your ads where you can be like, I have different versions of my ad. I'm targeting the same group of people, but they're getting different versions of the ad. 
I can see which version does better. I don't know if they have something like that, but I'm assuming they do. Yes, that's all built in. Um, so you can do A-B testing to different audiences, but then even within those A-B tests, you can say, give Facebook 10 different versions of your ad, 10 different versions of your ad copy, and it will A-B test the different audiences against each other, and then also test the different versions of your ad and copyright, your copy, your that's the, the words in your ad. Um, to get, you know, whatever the optimal versions are. You can go really deep. Like Facebook ads is a career in itself. Yeah. Yeah. Have you, have you thought about going to Upwork and trying to find someone who specializes in Facebook ads? I have not. Um, That that might be worth doing just to see if there's anyone there that could, could help you with that. Cause um I know that I need to get better at using Upwork and and using like my ability to find people on Upwork that I can be a good fit. That's kind of that whole networking thing. If you can, you know, find someone on that platform to help you out with that, it could be beneficial. Yeah, I guess, I guess my problem with a platform like that is that I don't trust people to just not do like the quick, easy thing without really digging into my product or like the company. Um, I would yeah, rather but- go with like a freelancer that like I know it knows design the everything and the audience and stuff. Yeah. The only reason I like Upwork is because um, there's been several instances where I'll hire like five or six different people and I'll have a milestone that I'll set. I'll be like, listen, I'm limiting your budget. Like we have a maximum budget that you can get, but we're going to go like through the first round. I'm going to have you, uh, do the best you can and, you know, I'll hire five or six people and I'll pick the one that is, that does the best and go, okay, you're the one that I'm going to hire for the actual project. And so mm-hmm. that's what I like Upwork for is that I can hire multiple people and be like, Hey, we're going to do a small test run with all you guys. I'm going to see what's your communication like. I'm going to see if you understand what I'm saying, if you can listen to directions, if you, uh, if you have a good, good, milestone like whatever the goal i set how well did you actually reach it and i can kind of compare all that stuff back and i can go okay that person does good work but their feedback is horrible that person like he was really talkative but he didn't understand what i was doing was asking a bunch of questions um you know and and like kind of filter through these people until i find one or two good ones and be like okay i'm gonna do have have you do these designs for me or or this whatever for me and then um you know, I might have more stuff for you down the line if I like what you do. Yeah. So, and, and I, was, I was just saying, I'll look into it. Um, something I'll have to think about, and you know, maybe I can find some reading material on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I mean, I don't really know. I'm sure there's other places out there. Upwork is just the one that comes to mind. I just don't like going to like a specific website that does advertising, like the one you were talking about with frog pods Mm -hmm. and then using like just defaulting to them, like based off the experience that you guys had, I I would prefer trying to find someone on like Upwork after hearing what he went through um, and just trying it out my own way to find hidden talent rather than um, finding a generic advertising website and being like here 
you do my advertising. Yeah. Because because I feel like I'm going to get better results if I can find if I can work with an individual one on one that I I know who's the same guy that I hire is the same guy that's doing the the work rather than hiring mm-hmm. a, a corporation that odds are are not going to care about it as much as if I hire a single guy. And I don't know of like a yellow pages for freelancers quite like uh, Upwork. If there's other websites out there, I'd love to, I'd love anyone who's listening to this to add that in the comments below. The upside of using a larger company is that they, they can afford to have specialists. So Mm -hmm. you can have one person who specializes in making the ad, one person who specializes in, you know, Facebook advertising, one person specializes in Google AdWords. Um, Yeah, but it's going to cost a lot, I think, in the beginning for guys like us to go find a company like the companies that are really good and can will really give us the 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 value that we're that you're talking about. I I feel like you're going to end up spending a couple grand with them to even get a conversation started. Whereas at the stages we're at right now, starting out with someone that you can find a, 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 t- a good talent that's a one-on-one guy until we grow to the point where we can afford and justify those bigger companies. And maybe instead of having them work on one product, maybe they're working on a family of products. Mm-hmm. Then I think that makes more sense. I will think about it. Maybe I'll do like a, a post on my Instagram account that's like, hey, does anybody here work in Facebook ads? Like either teach me or do it for me. Yeah. Yeah, that, so. that could be good. And, and, and you know, and, you know, you, we have a lot of people in the in the institute machinist community. Um, so if, you know, I'm sure there's some people that we could probably reach out to get their opinions as well. I, I personally love one of my favorite things is to reach out to people on Instagram who I really like their content. And I'm like, hi, I'm random person. Random <laughs> person want to talk about machining. <laughs> you okay with this? Yep. <laughs> And ninety nine point nine nine percent of the time they are like yeah yeah so I've had some I've had some great conversations and I've talked to a lot of people on the phone um, that started out as an Instagram because I'm like hey saw how you do your anodizing love it do you want to talk about it or you know hey saw this really cool fixture you did I'd love to talk about it or hey listen to this podcast you're on you know whatever yeah or you have like a machining question and you can just like message somebody at spacex or like yeah you know somebody who works for fusion or or for autodesk yeah. that'd be cool um, like you you can just reach out to people that are way out of your skill level which is mm-hmm. also nice yeah um so you're planning on launching your kickstarter campaign later this week so it's going Wednesday, which will be the day that this podcast comes out. So if you're listening to this podcast, the Kickstarter either just came out or it's just about to come out. Okay. Are you going to do an early morning? Do you have a, a set time you're planning on putting it out at? So I have a window of time. The gotcha. Kickstarter is going to launch some point between 12 and 5 p.m. Noon gotcha. and 5 p.m. The only way that you will know that the Kickstarter launches is by signing up for my notifications, which you can do at www.betterkeychains.com. That'll forward you to the Kickstarter. Um, Because I have a limited number of early bird spots and super early bird spots where you can get a discount. 
Awesome. Or you can become my pa- one of my patrons because one of my all my patrons know the exact time and place of launch, so they get first dibs on the discounts. That's awesome. That's that's a good way to to help out your patrons who want to support you even more. Yep, that was that was my theory. And actually, all of the prototype of the month members right now have a carabiner, but mm-hmm. a lot of them were talking about you know buying more. Yeah, yeah, and those those will become your. Your your super super backers probably like maybe not like super backers in the sense that they're gonna buy a bunch of them, but like maybe super supporters where they'll tell everyone yes. about it. So yeah. Um, oh, what was uh, sneezers? Seth Godin calls them sneezers. The people who are are telling other people about your your product. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah those are the really valuable people to to find. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I just checked and I have 61 people right now signed up for launch notifications. Yeah. Um, I, I was trying to remember back to other Kickstarters. I, the number that pops into my head is 37 followers. I think that was for the parametric pry bar. Mm-hmm. Uh, or I'm just making that up. I don't remember, but I think it was in that ballpark. I'll be good. I'm looking forward. I, I want to see you succeed in this Kickstarter campaign. I really, I really want to see it skyrocket. I, it would make my next year so much easier if this campaign hits twenty thousand dollars. Yeah, um, that that's like the. I don't know. I have different levels of goal. I don't know what to call it. That it's not quite. It's like my top tier realistic goal, I guess we'll call it. I mean, yeah, the dream is this hits, you know, 200 K, but like mm-hmm. realistically, the best I think this can do is, is 20 K. Um, if it hits 10 K, I'll be ecstatic, And at about seven K is okay. Good enough. We can move on. Yeah. 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 I, I, you know, it's, if, if you continue to get better at doing Kickstarter campaigns, as long as you grow with every Kickstarter campaign and don't take a, a major step back, um, yep. then I would count it successful. So yeah, I know goal. that we mm-hmm. go on. I, I was going to say, I know when we did our first Kickstarter campaign, um, we did pretty well for our first, but there's definitely a lot of stuff. Like I kept stuff too close to the chest. Um, and um, for my first one, I did not want to tell anyone about it until it got on Kickstarter. It was like, mm-hmm. you know, don't tell anyone because it's going to go. But it's like the inverse of what you really need to do. Like I should have been screaming it on Instagram and YouTube and like everything that I could. Anyone that would listen that like, hey, I'm going to be launching this Kickstarter. You should check it out. Hey, and like sign up for notifications. I, we didn't do any of that. So. To be fair, I probably go too far in the opposite direction with like, I don't know people yeah i don't know but um, i don't know I, I saw that frog pog stuff a lot more than i've seen your stuff on my instagram leading up to the launch of his kickstarter mm-hmm. um, and i don't know if that was maybe some of the advertising that he did but it was all over the place for a while so he did a fantastic job of getting his product out there um, i don't remember the exact numbers but he sent like about 50 out to different people and you know people like he had he's in this place where he's very good at at commute like making friends with people on instagram and youtube or whatever and so Mm -hmm. he had some go out to some pretty big um 
I guess we'll call them influencers. Mm-hmm. You know, Jimmy Duresta and um, oh, who's the other guy? Uh, I don't know, but you know, people with you know M's after their subscriber count, mm-hmm. or at least hundreds of thousands. So, oh, but he's just good at making connections. Did Duresta actually make a YouTube video about it? I don't know if he made a YouTube video about it, but I'm pretty sure he like shared it in some Instagram posts and stuff. Oh, that's cool. Um, but yeah, Tom is just a genuine, genuinely great person and like good at reaching out to people and making friends and mm-hmm. um, it that's, paid off for that's what it. Takes. Yep. Yeah. All right. Well, I think I just got a busy week ahead of me. So apart from the Kickstarter, I'm, what else, what else you got going on this week? Um, does, does life exist past the Kickstarter? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm uh, coming up. Yeah. So this week is like, once the Kickstarter launches, I don't really have anything else planned. Um, I'll start working on the, the next Kickstarter, which is a smaller carabiner. I've been working on a small, um, Oh, what's the word for it? Like a pivot, mm-hmm. uh, like a, a keychain pivot, which I don't know. I did some concept designs and threw those up on the um, design, the everything discord. And I don't know. The concepts are getting closer, but they're not quite there in function yet. Yeah. Um, and let's see, I've got some prototype of the month stuff. I've got like, I need to do another revision on my lanyard and on my, my key sling or a wristlet is like a short lanyard for your wrist i got to play with the first prototype of that today and it's it's close it's not bad uh i had a friend who got a small desktop injection molding machine and was asking if i could make molds which is honestly just something that i've always wanted to try so i'm gonna happily do that for him what what Um, brand did he get by chance you know so (laughs) we don't know yet he oh. got it. It was like given to him, and it is in a okay. cardboard box that is kind of falling apart. And he didn't want to open it until he like was at a position where he could start getting set up. So, I've who I've, knows? I've wanted to play around with one of those because I think it like if you had the right Kickstarter campaign, it could be a lot of fun to mass produce something. Yep, I I do too. I want to do a small injection molded carabiner. Of course, yeah, that'd be fun. Yeah. Uh Oh, so okay. This week, this week there's not much going on. Um mostly mostly Kickstarter and then after that it's pretty chill. Next week is busy. Because we're going to IMTS. We're driving up Tuesday. Mm-hmm. After I I do some work at um my old day job. Mm-hmm. And then same the night we'll be attending on Wednesday, Thursday. And then Friday, I'm actually working remotely from an Airbnb up there for my um, old old day job because I still you know do work for him a couple hours a week. Mm-hmm. And then like the rest of that day, and then Saturday, uh, it's just family time up you know in the Chicago area. We've got some family friends up there, so we're gonna you know take a couple days for to hang out with the family. And then. Immediately following that, on Saturday, I'm driving down to Cincinnati. So from Chicago to Cincinnati to go on a trip with my brother-in-law and wife for um, 
part of a, a birthday gift that we're, we gave them. So next, like the week after be... next is basically, or no, that's next week. Yeah. Next week is basically all travel. Yeah. Yeah. So we're, um, are we going to be, are you going to be available next week for a podcast? Uh, yes, because, uh, we're leaving on Tuesday. So I'll still be around Monday. Okay. Yeah. I'll be good. You'll have to let me know what, how IMTS goes. Cause I am super jealous. I really, really, really want to go, but it just wasn't going to work out this year. I'm very excited for it. So you have to go meet all the famous YouTube celebrities that watch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and go stop at Kern. And uh, I think Kern did a post or I heard on a story that you need to bring some broken carbide when you go. I saw that. So though they said to bring uh, is like three quarter inch or 20 millimeter. And I do not have any three quarter inch or 20 millimeter carbide. <laughs> I might. I might have to see if I can like mail you some broken carbide and okay. have you take it with, cause I think I have some. Yeah. My, so. my biggest carbide is three eighths inch. So <laughs> three quarter inch. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I will, I'll see if I can dig some up and I might have to send you a few so you can get us both have us both, uh, get one machined out of there. Deal. Is there anything you want me to check out for you while I'm there? Like take Co-bots. a video of, or, Cobots, Cobots, I want um, I want a cobot for my lathe if I can get the right kind of work. And there's, I'm starting to get a little bit of like I, one of the jobs that I'm doing this week is actually a repeat job, my very first repeat job, and it's like a 500 piece order that would mm-hmm. be perfect for a cobot to set up and just let it run. Um, and if it's going to be a continuous, uh, repeat job, that's like, um, once a month or once, once every two months, um, then I'm not saying that like I would spend basically like a year's worth of money on a cobot to do that job. But if I can find more jobs that are like it and get them on repeat, it'd be really nice to set up a cobot and let that work kind of just run. And so um, I was doing some pricing on some of those and they're getting basically the cost of like a, a Haas mini mill. Mm-hmm. So they're starting to make sense if I yeah. get the right kind of work, because I can basically let it set it up and let my machine run overnight. And that would be amazing. Yep. Yeah. yeah the, I would love to do more automation, but yeah, you, know, you need to sell things first. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> I want to find some job shop stuff that is higher volume that I could justify doing something like that. But yep. um, there's a video I watched here recently of a guy in a garage. He had three CNC mills in his garage. He had two hosses and a brother, and he had two cobots. And he had a hoss. Um, was it a T, uh, VM? VM2, VM3. He had two of those. And then he had a brother with a a dual pallet station that would rotate. Mm -hmm. And he had the cobot on the brother and one of the hosses. And then the the third hoss, he would run himself. And so he had three machines running in his garage and, and he was the only person that was running it. And it's like, that's exactly what I want to have happen. Like if I can have... Robots run my machines. It's the yeah. dream. 
So have you looked at the Tormach robot at all? I have. Um, have they released it yet? Because last time I checked, I think it's in beta. Yeah, I don't think. It's, I think you could been... get one if you wanted one. Yeah, um, I think. Do you know what pricing on those is yet? I think they're I, in the twenties, probably low twenties. Yeah, that's kind of what I've heard. But the problem with them is they are not force feedback like those cobots yes. are. And I have a small shop. And I don't really hit, <laughs> feel like getting hit in the head. Yeah, with a robot like that. Um, I reached out to them when they announced their beta program and asked them if I could become a beta tester early on. Mm-hmm. Um, but at that point, they didn't have any left for beta testing. I was a little too mm. late because as soon as I found out about it, I reached out. But at that point, they had already. Um, Giving them out, and, and I think uh, Big T's Chop Shop. Yep, on I've seen Instagram, those on YouTube. Um, Instagram, YouTube. I think he's the first guy that I've actually seen who's working on using a Tormach robot to load a Tormach mill. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm really excited for that project, but it's definitely taking a lot longer. I think they've just started running some parts on it, at least in the, one of their most recent posts, um, and that's kind of cool and exciting. So I don't know what I would do with it, but I want one. <laughs> yeah. I, I know what I could do with it. Um, and I know the kind of work that's around me. And if I could get something like that and get in. So there's, there's a shop around here. Um, they have four CNC shops in separate buildings. Mm-hmm. And then they have like eight or nine shops around here that they send parts out to. And they have a ton of work. And they're always looking for more connections. Problem yeah. is it's like Fort Knox to get in there. Mm-hmm. I've gone and I've called, I've emailed, I've showed up in person. And I haven't made it through the front door to a purchasing agent where I can talk about what it would take to get me some work to see if I can do some work with them. And I think it's going to take me getting a little bit more recognition, getting recognized better um, from different people to get me into that place. Um, But I would really, really like to do that because that would be just that one connection alone would basically set us up for a long time. Yep. So that's kind of, that's part of the reason I started doing some of the gun stuff and some of the other stuff was trying to get, find a way to get my name out to more people. That way, maybe a friend of a friend will hear about me and introduce me to a couple of these big places around here. Yep. Cause I'm willing to make the investment and in, in the technology, um, if the if uh if, if I can find the right work, yep. So, well, all right, I'm done. Do you have anything else? Yeah, I I don't got anything else other than uh, a busy week lined up. <laughs> well, good luck with that. You want to take us out? Uh, yeah. Thank you for uh for tuning in to this week's podcast. Uh, taps and patience. Uh, I'm your co-host, Harrison, here with AJ, and 
we thank you for listening in and we'll see you all next week. Talk to you Bye. later.